When I was in high school, there was a song that came out. It was my favorite song in high school. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, maybe a bit of a shock. It was a rap song. I'm down. In fact, this was like, this song was so awesome. It was, it was great. Every night on B96, how many of you remember B96 on the radio? That's right. Rocking out to B96. Um, every night, this was the number one song in Chicago. This was the song. And now I want to drop a little knowledge on you. Uh, for those of you who are a little bit younger, who uh, this, the struggle was real back in the day. Because we didn't have like recordable CDs. We didn't have phones with MP3. We didn't have MP3 players. We didn't have iPods. We didn't have, you know, I can download music. I can play Spotify on my phone, things like that. I didn't have that in the day. No, this is what I had to do when I wanted to record the song. When I wanted to hear the song, I had to take my my tape player, my, my, my jam box. How many of you remember the jam box? Or boom box, if you will, depending on what part of the hood you're from. Uh, so I, I took my jam box and I popped a cassette tape. Now, a cassette tape is this little thing about the size of an iPod, and you could put about 12 songs on it. All right? So I popped my cassette into the cassette player, and I took my, my jam box over to the radio, and I held it up to the speaker. Now, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Thank you very much. That's right. And the teenagers in the room are like, you are out of your mind. What are you even talking about? dinosaur. So anyway, uh, I take my jam box over to the radio, hold it up to the speaker. I hit record when the song comes on and I'm the happiest little teenager on the planet because now I have the greatest, the, the, the anthem of my generation. Now, granted, this is not an anthem as in previous generations that had anthems, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Beatles, let it be or uh, cats in the cradle. Uh, no, this was the all-time generation-defining anthem for my generation. Parents just don't understand. <laughs> oh, you've heard the song. Now, for those of you who are a bit younger, and this may come as a surprise to you, but there is an actor who, by the name of Will Smith, and before he was Will Smith, he was the Fresh Prince. He was a rapper, DJ Jazzy Jeff, and the Fresh Prince. There was a TV show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Perhaps you've seen it on TV land. It's now considered classic TV. I don't know who defines these things, if there's some kind of international consortium of, of television classics, but uh, apparently The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is now considered classic television. So um, I, I would record this song, and I'd listen to it constantly. Parents just don't understand, okay? Uh, and where this comes from, this song... This anthem, if you will, uh, where it comes from is a, a, a generational divide. That ever since there have been parents and teenagers, there has been a battle. A battle going on. A battle over things like fashion. You are not wearing that out of this house. You've either said it, you've thought it, or you've heard it. You are not wearing that out of this house. It's a generational divide, a generational battle over hair length. Right? You're going to grow your hair. It's time for you to get a haircut. I heard it. I still hear it. There are days. I still hear it. You're going to get your hair cut? 
Um, it's a generational divide over music. You call that music? Now here's the thing. Whether you're 70 years old or 7 years old, you've heard that. You may have even said it. You call that music? You said it to your kids or you heard it from your parents? You call that music? That's nothing but garbage. (laughs) You see, it's every generation. Every generation goes through this. Where there's this battle, this generational divide, this battle between parents and children, parents and teenagers. And what ends up happening is the teenager says to the parent, you just don't understand. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be a teenager, old man. You don't know what it's like to be in my shoes. You don't understand what it's like to be a teenager these days. It was different for you. You don't understand the peer pressure that I face. You don't understand fashion. Probably never did. I've seen the pictures. It's funny to me how everything comes around full circle. You know, really, it does. Everything comes around full circle. Uh, When I was in high school, I was up and down. I'm never going to wear bell-bottoms. We didn't call them bell-bottoms like 10 years ago. They were (laughs) boot-cut. They were bell-bottoms. You know, and and, and here it is. When I was in high school, this was the cool thing to do. You took your jeans, right, and you, you, you took it and you folded it over, and then you rolled it up. And you had this cool looking thing, right? Do you know what kids are doing these days? That. 20 some years later, and they're, they've got tight jeans and rolls and everything. And it's like, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon was absolutely right in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Get your own fashion, all right? Leave the 80s back where it belongs. If acid wash ever comes back, we are in serious trouble serious trouble parents just don't understand they just don't get it you don't know what it's like to be a teenager today you don't know what it's like to be in my shoes you don't understand the struggles i have you don't understand the pressures of homework you don't understand the pressures of a social life you don't understand the pressures of uh the peer pressure of drugs and and alcohol and you don't understand the pressures to have sex you don't understand all these pressures that i have you don't understand the the pressure that i'm under you just don't understand said it to my parents. You just don't get it. You don't understand. I said it to my friends about my parents. Man, my parents don't get me. My parents don't understand me. They don't understand. My parents don't get it. They don't understand. Sometimes I wonder if we think the same thing about God. God, you just don't understand. You don't understand me. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand my pain. You don't understand my pressure. You don't understand the the pressure that I feel that I have to perform at work. You don't understand the pressure I feel here at home. You don't understand the pressure in my life. You don't understand what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. You don't understand what I'm going through, God. You don't understand, God, what I face. You don't understand my life. You don't understand what it's like to be human. You don't understand what it's like to be a teenager. You don't understand what it's like to be a, a, a 
a mom or a dad. You don't understand what it's like to be different. You don't understand what it's like to be rejected. You don't understand what it's like to be lonely. You don't understand what it's like to hurt. And I'm here to tell you, he does. God understands. Now, typically when we think of understanding in God, we hear somebody say, well, me and God, we got an understanding. Me and God, we've got an agreement. Let me tell you what, you don't. There is no understanding with God. There is no agreement with God. There is no uh, deal. There is no bargain with God. No, the reality of the situation is that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. The, the deal that he works out is that he gave his son to die for our sins. That's the deal. That if you will believe in him, repent from your sins, confess your faith, and be baptized, the deal is you get to go to heaven. That's the deal. That's the understanding. But as far as this bargain with God, there is no bargaining with God. No, when it comes to God and understanding, I do believe that he understands what it's like to be us. That he understands what loneliness is like. That he understands what rejection feels like. That he knows what pain feels like. Physical pain, emotional pain, heartache, loss, grief. That God knows what it's like to be us. Why? How, how do you know that, Sean? I mean, how do you know that God knows what it's like to be us? How do you know that God knows what it's like to, to have struggles? How do you know what it's like that God knows what it's like to have weaknesses? How do you know that God knows what it's like to have temptations? Because I believe that he does. I believe that God knows what it's like to be tempted. We started a new series in the book of Hebrews last week. It's going to go throughout the entire summer. We're going to take about a chapter a week. And today we're in Hebrews chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Hebrews 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's in, there's a Bible in the chair, on the chair rack in front of you. It's on page 846 is where you'll find Hebrews chapter 2 if you are not familiar with the New Testament. And we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 2 today. And we're going to talk about, last week we talked about how Jesus is God. We talked about how he's superior to the angels and that as he sits enthroned in heaven at the Father's right hand, that he is worshipped by angels, adored by angels, and that Jesus is superior to the angels. The, the Jews believe that only God is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of praise. And Jesus, on the, at the right hand of the Father, being worshipped and adored and praised by angels, means that he is God. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God. But today we're going to see that he's so much more. Today we're going to see that, that, yes, Jesus is God, but yet he is also just like us. Jesus is like us. And I believe that the reason that Jesus is like us is so that we can become like him. And I believe that we become like him in a couple of different ways, and I'll explain those in a little while. I believe that Jesus is like us so that we can become like him. 
Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. There's two sections to it. One is kind of a bridge between chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we'll see why that in just a second. And then the rest of chapter 2 is about how Jesus was made like us. Let's look at Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4 to begin with. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was uh, binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There's a word there in chapter in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, that unites chapter 1 with, verse, with chapter 2. It is the word, therefore. And whenever you see that word in Scripture, you should know that it is a linking word, that it is linking the previous chapter, the previous section, with the next one. And so what he says is we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And what they had heard was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God had sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That God sent his son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, he is the one who is worthy to be a sacrifice for our sins. He was the one who was worthy to drink of the cup uh, that would bring us salvation. He was the one who was uh, the perfect, sinless, blameless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So therefore, since we have heard this gospel, since we have heard the message, and it was confirmed by the apostles, those who heard Jesus, it was confirmed by miracles and teachings, that since you have heard this, therefore, uh, you should not ignore it so that you do not drift away. The Greek, the New Testament was written primarily in Greek, and, and there's, a, there's a, a word that means drift away. And it's a word that has to do with a ship. Uh, imagine a ship that is anchored to the shore. Okay? And, and, and this idea is that uh, to drift away means that the anchor is not set, that there is no anchor, that the ship is not anchored to the shore. And when the tides come and go, when the water ebbs and flows, that it gradually causes the ship to drift away. You see, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, if we are not anchored to the rock of our salvation, if we are not anchored to the word of God, if we are not anchored to Christ, then we are in danger of gradually, slowly drifting away. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks, in this idea of, of drifting away from our faith, drifting away from Jesus. Because see, it doesn't happen suddenly. Rarely does one wake up and go, eh, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. It does happen, but usually it's a, a drifting, a gradual drifting away from your faith that causes you to one day go, I don't know that I believe that anymore. I don't know that I still believe in Jesus. I don't know that I still want to go to church. I, I don't know that I still want to read my Bible. I, I don't know. It's a gradual drifting away. It's not a wake up, nope, I'm out. I'm done, had enough. It's a gradual drifting away. And so this is why the author of Hebrews says that we must pay more, excuse me, pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from Jesus. Well, then we come to the second half of chapter 2. 
It is not to angels, verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Amen. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Not just his physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants as well. That's us. For this reason he has to be made like his brothers in every, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you hear what the author of Hebrews says? That Jesus was tempted in every way. That Jesus was tempted. That Jesus was made like his brothers and sisters. Made like us. Made human in every way. That when we say, God, you don't understand. He says, no, you don't understand. I know what it's like. Because I've been there. I've been to your world. In the person of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, I have come to your planet. I have come to the world in which I created. I have come. And I have experienced the, the full range, the entire gamut, everything of, of human existence I have experienced. I have experienced it all. And Jesus did. He experienced everything. He experienced grief when he was praying in the garden. And drops of sweat uh, fell like blood, or he sweat drops of blood. When he was so overwhelmed uh, and anguished that he sweat drops of blood. When he was, was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. What is the Bible verse every little kid memorizes? Jesus. Why did he cry? Why did he weep? It was, it was not for Lazarus' loss, but he was sympathizing those who were mourning his, his friend Lazarus. He's able to sympathize. He's able to empathize with those who are mourning and those who are grieving, with those who are weeping. He's not far away. God is not sitting on a cloud up in heaven just twiddling his thumbs, waiting to send Jesus back, going, well, you know, we'll see how this whole thing works out. That's not God. God gets his hands dirty. He gets his hands messy. He gets his hands in our lives and in our world. And he... And he He's involved and he's active and he knows what you are going through. He sees what you are going through and he's been there. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way. Tempted, tested in every way. He knows what temptation is like. He faced the devil head on, face to face. In Matthew's gospel, we read how the devil came to tempt Jesus. 
And yet Jesus resisted. Even at his weakest moment, when after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasted for, for that length of time, and he was physically exhausted and physically weakened, the devil comes calling to him and says, Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy to the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone. He tempts him with food. He tempts him with power. He tempts him with worship. And yet Jesus resists the devil. He quotes scripture to the devil and he overcomes temptation. I don't want you to think for a moment that the devil gave up at that moment. Well, I guess that was no good. I know I know that the devil kept calling on him. The devil kept coming at him. Jesus was tempted, it says, in every way possible. So he knows what temptation is like, yet he overcame. He knows what grief is like, yet he overcame. He knows what rejection felt like. Jesus was rejected by the people who he was sent to save. He was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by the people in his hometown. He was rejected by his own followers. After Jesus was arrested, his followers scattered. His disciples were nowhere to be found. They were nowhere to be around him. One of his closest friends, if not his closest friend, Peter, denied even knowing him three times. Judas betrayed him. One of his friends betrayed him and caused him to die. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He knew that pain, that, mo- that grief of, of uh, betrayal. He knows what it's like. Jesus knew the pain of loneliness. The Bible says that he often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Jesus knows what it's like to be poor. You may think, well, he doesn't know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck, to just scrape enough to barely get by. You know what Jesus said? He said, birds of the air have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, Jesus was a homeless man. A homeless man. He had no no home to call his own. He relied on the generosity and kindness of strangers and people that he knew. Jesus was poor. He knows what it's like, my friends. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to have struggles to struggle against temptation. You may think, I, I can't do it. Maybe there's days in your life when you're like, you know what, I feel pretty strong today. Temptation will come along, you'll say, nope, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need that struggle. I don't need that temptation. I feel good today. I'm going to resist temptation. And it could be a hostess ding-dong. Or it could be a website. Or it could be a bottle. Or it could be a drug. Or it could be a, an affair. Whatever is coming down the pike, whatever temptation is coming your way, there may be days when you feel, I'm strong today, and I'm not going to give in to temptation today. I'm strong. I'm strong today. But then, there are days... There are days in your life, there are days in my life, when the temptation comes along, the temptation comes calling, and you're like, forget it, let's go. Any of you ever have days like that? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) We don't need to know. The reason we don't need you to raise your hands is because we 
could all raise our hands. We could all say, that's me from time to time. But you know what? That's not Jesus. Because even though Jesus was tempted in every single way, Jesus is just like us. He never gave in. He never surrendered to temptation. He never surrendered to sin. He never gave in to sin. He is the sinless, perfect, blameless Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That God, because Jesus never sinned, he was the perfect, acceptable, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And that when he was on the cross, the Bible says that that God took all of our sins and heaped them onto his son. He placed them on his son so that when his son died, our sins died too. And if you will put your faith and trust in Christ, if you will believe in him, repent from your sins, confess your faith and be baptized, your sins will be washed away. Your sins that were placed on Christ are gone forevermore, never to be heard from again. Your sins are forgiven when you trust in Christ by the grace of God, not by your efforts, not by how well you overcome sin, not by how well you resist temptation. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with everything that Jesus did for you on the cross. So we can look at Jesus. We can look at God and say, God, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand the pain that I feel. You don't understand the rejection that I feel. You don't understand the struggles that I have with temptation. You don't understand my weaknesses. And yet the Bible tells us and Jesus says, I do. I do understand and do you know what he says he says bring it to me bring it to me quit trying to do it on your own quit trying to do it your way quit quit trying to overcome temptation and struggles and sins on your own Jesus says bring it to me quit trying to overcome guilt quit trying to overcome shame on your own Jesus says, bring it to me. Because he died to give us the power and the strength through the Holy Spirit to overcome the struggles, to overcome the sins, to overcome the guilt, to overcome the shame, to overcome the, the trials and the tests. You can't do it on your own. It is only by the power of God within you, made possible through Jesus Christ. My friends, he understands Because he was made like us. Jesus became like one of us so that we might become like him. Jesus became one of us so that we might become like him. Now, what do I mean when I say that we need to be like Jesus? What do I mean when I say we need to become like him? Do we need to be sinless? Do we need to be perfect? The Bible says we need to be holy. Do I need to be perfect? I don't think it's possible to be perfect. And let me tell you why I don't think it's possibly perfect. Because if we could be perfect, if we could earn our salvation through our good deeds, if we could be perfect enough to go to heaven, it means Jesus wouldn't have had to die. And because Jesus had to die, it tells me I can't be perfect. Because Jesus had to die, it means that I can't do it on my own. Because Jesus had to die, I can't be good enough to go to heaven on my own. I need help. Jesus is my help. Jesus is my brother. Jesus is the one who picks me up when I fall down. 
Jesus is the one who saves me when I sin. Jesus is the one who forgives me when I fall short. Jesus is my help. So what do I mean when I say that we need to be like Jesus? That Jesus became like us so that we could become like him? I believe that the answer is a very simple four-letter word, L-O-V-E. We need to be like Jesus in the way that we love God and the way that we love others. To have to be perfect as he is perfect is to love perfectly. To love those in this room, to love those outside this room, whether it be a friend or an enemy, whether it be someone who loves you or someone who hates you. Jesus became like one of us so that we could become like him. And if we will love him and if we will love others the way that he loves us, then we will sin less. Because when we sin against someone, it just means that we don't love them. Why would we hurt those we love? Right? So, what I'm trying to say is this. He knows. Jesus knows. And Jesus understands. You're not alone. In your battles, in your struggles, in your pain because Jesus knew pain he knew the pain of the cross so that we don't have to Heavenly Father I thank you God that you sent your son to be like one of us that you sent your son Jesus to be just like us so that we could become just like him I pray that Father God you would help us in our weaknesses Help us in our struggles against sin and temptation. Help us to overcome the, the struggles that we have in our lives. Whatever those struggles may be. We may struggle with addiction. We may struggle with pain. We may struggle with uh, sin. And some, Sometimes, God, we don't even struggle. We give in far too easily. I pray that you'd forgive us when we do. I thank you that, God, you have sent your son Jesus to be our Savior, to pay the price, to take the shame and the pain so that we don't have to bear it. Thank you, God, for your Son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.